Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people currently working in international schools, and we talk about life in their current country, and then we dive into some specific topics. The podcast is sponsored by Apps Events. We're a Google for Education partner and made up of former educators, all experts in helping schools integrate Google into their schools and classrooms. All training is customized for every school to make sure it has lasting impact. We're also experts on online virtual Google training, and we can deliver all our certification bootcamps and training completely online to schools. We have teams in Europe and the Middle East, Asia and the US, and we can help you wherever you are. Check it out over at appsevents.com. We're also delighted to say we're now an ISTE partner and we're delivering the ISTE Certified Educator worldwide with our subsidiary AE Learning. ISTE certification is a pedagogy-focused, vendor-neutral, professional certification aimed at educators wishing to transform their edtech practice. We run two-day certification boot camps which are amazing fun, great networking and will give you a huge boost both to your career and for your school. Get all the info at aelearninglab.com. Finally, the podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People ask us what Chromebooks and Windows laptops we recommend for schools, and after literally trying them all, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more information, please just leave your email at gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get straight back to you. We go to Acer HQ in Taiwan every year to be part of product discussions, and they are genuinely the best thought out, cost-effective, and durable devices out there. And now, on to the interview. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Doug Bradburn, who is in Taichung in Taiwan. I've been trying to get Doug on the podcast for a while. So, Doug, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Dan. It's great to talk with you again. Yeah, well, so, so some background. Doug is the high school principal at Morrison Academy uh, in Taichung. It's an international school, a Christian international school. I've been there, I was trying to remember if it was three times or four times. I, um, I've been there quite a bit. I've always had an amazing time. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's four. I think after we've done four events there. I think, is that right? I think so. I think we've done yeah. four. Uh, and it's great. So, uh, And we'll talk a bit about living in, in, in Taiwan. Taichung is, um, it's, I think, the second biggest city in Taiwan. Is that right? Right. Yep. Yeah. And a big, big manufacturing place, but a really interesting place. And, and we'll get, we'll get into that. Doug, I want to talk about like your background and stuff. Cause you know, it's, it's, you've got an interesting background. You know, I know you were involved in, in American football and teaching in the U S and, and also you, mm-hmm. you, you've, you've become a high school principal. And I think, you know, a lot of people um, in who are teachers in international schools, that's something they're maybe considering. Are they going to try to get into that position? And you've, you've navigated that. So it'd be great to talk about, your kind of career and, and how, how you ended up here. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. You're right. I probably do have a very unique uh, pathway to, to this position than many people. Uh, my desire out of high school wasn't necessarily to become a high school principal. Uh, it was actually more of uh, uh, uncertainty. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, as I was getting out of high school, uh, I was not, let's say, the best student in high school. And so my grades were pretty bad. My motivation for learning was pretty bad. And so I basically needed something to get me back on track. And so that for me turned out to be the U.S. Navy. And so uh, I joined the Navy um, right out of high school and tried to 
uh, figure out and find my way uh, where I wanted to go or what I wanted to do. Did you join an enlist, en enlisted Navy officer or how, how did you join? Yeah, enlisted. Yeah. And so uh, actually I had probably like five or six of the guys I was graduating with were all going into some sort of military and all of us were enlisting. And, um, and so that's kind of where I started to get the idea. And I had an uncle who was uh, in the Navy and, uh, and so he was telling me a lot about it. Um, he was in like the early 70s, so quite a while ago. Uh, so I had enough people that were going and were telling me about it. And it seemed like something that at least I could get started in life, uh, get out of the small town that I was in and and yeah. try to learn a trade and, and get some some motivation. Uh, so that's what uh, initially launched me into, um, I think, a career path. Uh, when I first went in, I didn't really feel like I wanted to be a career military guy. Uh, it was OK. It was something that was uh, more mentally than physically challenging. Uh, but I, I became an aviation electrician was my okay. actual job. And so I worked on F-14 aircraft. Um, were you on aircraft carriers or were you, were you on a base? Um, both, actually. And so um, when I finished my school, then I, uh, my school was about a year long and uh, very intense. Uh, and that's all you did. You just went to school. And so when I finished, I went to my, my base, which is in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And uh, from there... Uh, I was attached to VF-101, was my squadron. So we were a shore-duty-based F-14 squadron. Uh, we were what we were called uh, a replacement air group. Uh, so basically, we trained all of the pilots for fleet. And right. so um, throughout our training phases, we would need to we would go out to the aircraft carriers with our pilots and then service them and repair the aircraft during their qualification phases. And so, so I went out uh, four different times on uh, three different aircraft carriers. And uh, so I got some really good experience, uh, you know, what it's like on an aircraft carrier and uh, just working out at sea, wor working on top of a flight deck, uh, which is uh, pretty intense. Um, did, did you get to so travel much? Because I, mean, I know I, I was actually, I don't know if I told you, I was in the, the Navy uni University, the unit, you know, that we have these, oh. you know, these Navy, these military divisions. And I was going to join the Navy. And uh, <laughs> I kind of, I took a year off traveling after university. And I'm, I, I, I was already like, I'm already 23. I'm probably too old to, to take the discipline. <laughs> I, I decided against it, but... But all through uh -huh. school and university, I, I was I was planning on joining the Navy. That was my thing, you know. Nice. Oh, wow. We got that in common. I didn't know that. Yeah, um, yeah. No, we, I think you, you have a similar thing. It's, I think it's called ROTC in, in, in America, isn't it? Like it's called something different yeah. in the UK, but yeah, I did that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I was, uh, when I was in, uh, since we were shore duty based, we didn't go out on cruises. Like a cruise would be a six to nine month deployment. Yep. And so my uh, squadron was just service or basically training uh, pilots to, to go on those deployments. Right. But what we did do is we went to, um, uh, we traveled inside the continent of the United States a lot. Yep. And so I, I traveled to Key West um, usually three or four times a year at least. Uh, sometimes I was there for a few months at a time. But we would go down there and our pilots would go through dogfight training and uh, do a lot of maneuvers um, where the weather was always really nice off the coast of Florida. And so we would go there a lot. I went to Top Gun in Miramar. Oh, okay. So I got to live the adventure of the movie, really. Uh, I mean, I'm a little older. So when I was in the Navy, actually Top Gun had just come out. Right. And so when we went, went to the school, uh, Navy Fighter Weapons School, uh, we actually got to see everywhere you know, the movie was shot and be you know in the in the hangar bays and on the flight lines and uh oh, wow. so anyway they actually filmed they did film it there did they they filmed it actually at Topka. uh there were a lot of scenes from that area yeah yeah, yeah oh. for sure miramar fighter town usa uh so it was pretty cool to be out there and be out there in the midst of you know this movie phenomenon that was kind of yeah, sweeping yeah. the country 
Um, and so I traveled around uh, several bases, China Lake and Yuma, Arizona. Uh, so, um, so inside the United States was mostly my travel uh, with the Navy. So, but that was it. And then, uh, I mean, I think, I mean, the Navy probably uh, helped me to start to develop a, lead, a sense of leadership. Um, I hadn't really had that before. I mean, I played football in high school and, and, um, and I had some element of it, but I, I really, I didn't have a lot until I went to the Navy and I started to really learn um, sometimes the hard way of leadership, some tough lessons. And uh, some of it was more formal training. Uh, some of it was just because of the rank you wore on your sleeve. Uh, you were automatically a leader. People recognized you as a leader. I didn't see myself as a leader, but people you know, knew that I was and I became quickly in charge of things and yeah. I had uh, a lot of responsibilities. And uh, so then I started to develop what that meant to be a leader and how people looked at you differently and how you had kind of a different sort of accountability to people. And uh, so that was kind of where it started, I think, uh, as far as uh, leadership. Um, when I got out of the Navy, I, I decided I wanted to go to college and I want to be a teacher and a football yeah. coach. How, how many years, by the way? How many years were you committed to in the Navy? Uh, I just did four years. Four years, yeah. Four years active duty. Yeah. And so when I got out, I decided to join the Army National Guard. And right. um, and that was mainly for money. <laughs> so yeah. I wanted to, uh, I, I didn't have much money and uh, I had the GI don't Bill. Like free, don't you automatically get free university if you, from the GI Bill if you come out after four years? Um, you get money towards your education, but it's right. not free. So it's it's really a pretty good deal. You invest a small amount and you get back quite a bit. I mean, again, I was in for so long ago that my return on investment wasn't great compared to what it is now, but it was enough. I mean, it was really pretty good. Yeah. Um, but I, I knew I still needed money. So I was working four jobs, uh, plus being in the Army National Guard. And um, and then that was only one week in a month and two weeks out of the year. for. And I signed up for four years to do that. Yeah. Uh, but that was another piece, though, that I felt like kind of helped develop my leadership philosophy and, uh, and being in the army was very different than being in the Navy. It was just, uh, just it seemed to be, even when we were together, just more intense. It wasn't quite as laid back as when I was working mm -hmm. on aircraft. And uh, it was just everything about it just seemed to be, I don't know, more magnified. Yeah. And so, um, but I went to leadership school in the Army National Guard and uh, in Nebraska. So for two weeks, I went out and, uh, and did a lot of training uh, in the classroom, in the field, um, working with uh, 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 platoon leaders. And um, I just got a really kind of more of a formal education, I think, in, in, for leadership and very intense when you're for two weeks, that's all you're doing, you know, for 24 seven. It's, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a lot, you know. And were, were you going to college at the same time or was that later? No, I was going at the same time. Right. Yeah. So we would do that in the summer. Uh, we would go away somewhere two weeks in the summer. And that would happen to be one of my summers. So in order for me to get my promotion uh, from E5 to E6, uh, which I was a sergeant in the Army National Guard, to be a staff sergeant, you needed to go through prim primary leadership and development course. And so that was the two-week course I needed to get. And, um, and so once I did that, then I had all of my requirements and was able to get advanced in rank to staff sergeant. Right. And so, um, so that, again, helped kind of keep shaping uh, my, uh, my leadership philosophy. And so this whole time, I mean, I'm still going to college. I'm still planning on getting out and coaching. Uh, that was kind of my primary motivation for going into schools. I really wanted to coach. I think my motivation really was just uh, I had such a tough upbringing and never had money. Uh, my parents were divorced. I, I was always struggling just from neighborhood to neighborhood, getting bullied a lot. Um, we moved around a ton. And, and so I just I 
felt like my calling was more of to try to help kids that might be in those similar situations. Right. Okay. And so in the classroom, you can do so much, but in coaching, I felt like you had a different uh, relationship with kids and you could do more with them. You could speak to them in a different way and you just had more contact with them and, instead of just in the classroom. So, so that was kind of uh, what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a coach and then to do that, I had to teach, uh, which I didn't enjoy I mean, I was okay with doing that, but uh, the coaching was the, the piece that I really was passionate about. Did you study education? Is that what you did at college? Yeah. So my bachelor's was in um, secondary education with a primary emphasis in biology. And then later I, I got my endorsement in chemistry. So I taught biology, chemistry, and then a variety of different sciences. Okay. They were my two worst yeah. subjects at school, biology and chemistry. I was, <laughs> I was physics, but I was terrible at biology and chemistry. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed learning about the body. That was kind of something I, I really wanted to do. I didn't really like chemistry, but uh, for me to coach at this particular school, I needed to get my chemistry endorsement. And so I went back to school while I was full-time teaching and got my chemistry endorsement so I could move to another school, which actually it's the biggest high school in the state of Indiana right now. Okay. Uh, but they had a great football program and a Hall of Fame coach. And uh, he told me if I wanted to come there, then I needed to, uh, I needed to teach chemistry. And so I was like, okay, I'll do what I got to do. Great. So I went back and got it. But that, I mean, just was another piece to just kind of help me along the way to developing uh, my philosophy of coaching, uh, developing further my leadership philosophy. So I was a, an assistant football coach for this guy for eight years um, and taught in this school. Um, it's Ben Davis High School in Indianapolis, Indiana. And for people and, that don't um, know, I mean, I've worked with a lot of schools in the U.S. For people outside the U.S., I mean, for some of these football schools, like, the football coach can be the highest person, high, highest paid person in the school sometimes, can't they? You know, like sometimes yeah. they do a really good job. Yeah. Well, especially in the South. I mean, in the South and in Texas, uh, kind of your SEC states, Texas. they are, yeah. huh? Oh, the team in Odessa, Texas. Is it Friday Night Lights, that film about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida. I mean, all of those states, uh, I mean, a lot of them, the coaches. Uh, just uh, that's all he does. The football coaches, uh, that's his job. Uh, they don't always have to teach. Um, in Indiana, it's not like that. Uh, yeah. We didn't have to, like the head football coach didn't have to teach uh, a lot, but he still had a teaching assignment. Um, and then the coaching pay was pretty decent. But again, it wasn't six figures like you get in a lot of the, you know, the, the southern states. But sure. um, but it was all right. I mean, the pay was still really good where we were at. And um, and the football program was, was outstanding. Um, the, the school right now, I think they're around 4,600 students in four grades. Wow. And so we would have about 150 players on our on our football team. That's grades 10 through 12. And then grade nine, they would have about 100 just in grade nine alone. Wow. Um, so pretty big numbers. Um, but yeah, the program was huge. It was, uh, if anyone came to see it, it would be kind of like going to a small college. Uh, we would typically have between four and 6,000 people at every game. Uh, we won several state championships while I was there and we would play uh, at, at the time RCA Dome. And then um, uh, it wasn't quite Lucas Oil Stadium. That's where the Colts play now. But Hoosier Dome, RCA Dome. So really big crowds. We would get um, usually forty to 50,000 that would come to a state championship wow. game. And, uh, so it was just at a different level than what people may recognize or think about when they think about, oh, it's just coaching football. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty big. But, um, but yeah, so that, that was a great experience and it helped me to become a head football coach. So when I left that school, I went to a school on the south side of Indianapolis 
and became a head football coach at Perry Meridian High School for five years. Right. And, um, that was your full-time job, just being a football coach. Or were you teaching still as well? Uh, still teaching, yeah, still at the time. They gave me a pretty good schedule, though. So I was in the weight room uh, for one block, and then I had uh, kind of like a football planning block, and then I taught two chemistry classes. Uh, so it really was pretty decent. I had time to kind of focus on everything I needed to. Um, it was, uh, I want to say, probably one of the toughest, thing I, toughest things I've ever had to do just because of uh, where I was at and uh, taking a, a head football position for the first time. You just really don't know quite what it's going to be like until you start it. And then yeah. you realize how much work is involved. And it's not even just the work. The thing that was probably the, the toughest was really the, the pressures, the, all of the pressures that came from community that came from parents, that came from players, came from administration, uh, from uh, the media, uh, from everywhere. Um, yeah. We were constantly in the spotlight. Uh, it was just, uh, it was difficult. And all that kind of weighs on you after a while, especially if you don't win games. Yeah. You kind of hear it from everybody. Everybody's got a, an opinion how you should be doing things. And you're trying to do it the way you see it and the way that you think is the right way. And uh, everyone else has a different way of doing it. So, yeah. and if you're not winning, it's hard to defend. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I tell you, sport is just binary. I mean, you either win or you lose, and that's that's what it comes down to, isn't it? That's that's a tough thing. You, yeah. you can make all the reasons why you did a really good job, but if you don't win, <laughs> you don't win. You know. You know, and that's the thing. It's like I I never really preached that. I mean, that, that was not my philosophy. Uh, our our philosophy was to be the best that we could be. I mean, I hate to say that kind of an an army cliche, but uh, yeah. but it really was. It was all about improvement. It was like every day you're either getting better or you're getting worse. Um, and, it, and it was always like, what are you doing today to get better? And so we yeah. kept focusing on uh, improvement and, uh, and a great positive football experience. And so everything that we did, which we did a lot off the field too, was about an experience. It wasn't about uh, a win necessarily. Now we, we prepared really hard and, and we worked hard and everything we did in, in terms of uh, uh, philosophy was to be excellent, to be the best that we could be. Uh, but in the end, we weren't always results-based, but that's not the world, especially sure. when you're coaching. They are results-based. If you're not winning, then there's a problem. Well, maybe it's you know, a variety of things, but everyone thinks that they know what it is. And yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to navigate, um, but you keep working and we try not to focus too much on that. Uh, my strength coach at the school I was at prior to that and the head coach was always focus on the process, not on the product. Yeah. It's always the process of becoming a champion, not the end result, but that's not society. So and we, it we always to try, to try to get some players to get college scholarships, like to get a, get a bunch of people to do that. Yeah. My job was really to help them be wherever they wanted to be. If, yeah. uh, if I had a player that wanted to be um, in university and playing football in university, uh, then I would do everything I could to help them. If they just wanted to have a good positive experience, become a better person, then that's what I would do to help them, and and uh, and so I would talk to a lot of a lot of colleges. Uh, I made uh, films for every player. We do break game films down, uh, make highlight videos for players. Uh, we would make mass copies and give them as many copies that they wanted to send out. So we did a lot to recruit our players. Uh, parents would do some stuff too, but my job was to help them uh, to go where they wanted to go and yeah. to talk to the coaches that they wanted to uh, where they wanted to go. And so that's what I wanted to do. And again, that goes back to my philosophy of helping them, you know, uh, be the best they can be, be where they want to be, uh, have a good experience and uh, become better than what they, you know, they are, not just, you know, sure. in football, but as a person. Yep. So. 
Great. Yeah. And what and what was next? I mean, when did you when did you start thinking about where did international education come on your horizon? Or was this was that a bit later on? Yeah, good question because that's kind of right where um, that started to happen. When I was a head football coach, after five years, uh, I resigned. And when I resigned, uh, it was really I was I was kind of getting burned out, but it was more of I was taking a physical toll, and and so I kind of felt like it was time for me to step back and just kind of reevaluate what I wanted to do in coaching or if I wanted to do something different. And uh, when I stepped back, um, I met um, or I saw one of uh, the guys I used to coach with at church. And he was telling me about, about a cohort program that he was in at University of Indianapolis uh, for education leadership. And uh, he was going through it. It was like a year and a half long program. And then you get your principal's license and, um, and can go into education leadership. And so I started thinking uh, and started praying about that. And uh, you know, after, you know, a, a month or two, I, I felt like that was a direction that I felt God wanted me to go. And I talked to my wife and, you know, we talked through it. And so I started into that program and, um, I didn't really know where it was going to lead. I just knew it would maybe open some doors and maybe help me to still be in education, just do it in a different way. Sure. And, um, and so when I started that, uh, then this idea of teaching overseas started to, uh, started to happen. So my brother-in-law was actually at Morrison uh, when uh, when I was in the States, when I was going through my leadership classes. And and so that's how we knew about this school. And right. so I started hearing that there was uh, an opening. And uh, I mean, honestly, I, I, I didn't have any desire to teach or work overseas. It just from my background and from what all I had done, I had not really known anybody that had done that. It just really wasn't ever on the radar. It wasn't ever a desire of mine. Yeah. Um, but but it started to surface until you, I, I didn't know it existed until, you know, like in my thirties, even, but it's, it's, it's a cool option. To work in. People just don't, people don't even know about in, international education. No. It's a strange thing. No. Unless you know, you, we're, we're in the middle of it, but it, people don't know about it, you know, and it's, it's a cool no. thing. That's so true. And that's what I didn't really realize until I started to, you know, explore it a little bit. Uh, but I didn't really fully understand until I'm here until I'm in Taiwan. And then I started to, get the sense of nobody really has an idea or a clue of what it's like. Or um, I talked yeah. to my friends from back home and even my family and they're like, what are you doing? Why are you over there? It's like, yeah. just still didn't really have a, a grasp of, yeah. of what it means or what it is. And I mean, I, I'm thankful that I'm here, but then I'm like, I wish I would have done this like 20 years ago. What was the first job you got? Like what, what, what did you apply for? Yeah. So, uh, at the beginning when uh, I was coming here, it was to teach middle school science and uh, freshman biology. And, uh, and it was at the Kaohsiung campus. And so it wasn't even in Taichung and, and it wasn't in leadership and it wasn't really coaching necessarily. <laughs> it was, it was just, uh, uh, probably something that was totally out of my comfort zone. I had taught middle school science my first couple years out of college, but, um, not really a, a strong desire to teach that level, that um, the middle school level of, of kid, but um, but that was the opening. And my wife and I really prayed a lot about if this is something we needed to do. And I honestly, I'd, I'd interviewed at some other jobs. I had other job offers, uh, but nothing just felt right. I mean, it was really more of a, uh, I felt like every door was closing for some reason, either it wasn't paying enough or it wasn't uh, the right timing for a position. Um, it was in a different place than I wanted to be. Uh, this was the only thing that made sense. Uh, and even looking at the job itself and the pay, oh my gosh, the pay from what I was making till here was something that nobody in their right mind would probably ever do. 
I mean, right. it was a huge, huge uh, drop from what I was getting paid. But really, okay. uh, but my wife and I both felt like, and we have had at the time three small kids. Uh, the the package was uh, definitely uh, livable. Um, it was we felt like it was okay. We didn't expect to come here and get rich, which nobody would expect to do. But we felt like it was still a calling from God to move us in this position for some reason, and uh, we just wanted to be obedient to that. And so once. Sorry, but yeah. in terms of the package, I guess, if you th- people think about it in terms of like you have three children and, and if you want your children, say, to have like a private education and, you know, your school is a really good quality education, that's kind yeah. of, that, that's worth a lot as well, isn't it? I guess that's yep. something people also, <laughs> and the housing allowance and all these things, it's it kind of, it's a lot of extra things that come on with an yeah. international job. Yeah, that's a good point, Dan, because you can't, you can't just look at the base salary or just, you know, kind of, and compare it to America um, yeah. and living in Taiwan, the cost of living is cheaper um, and then when you look at the big picture of everything, you know, you've got three kids tuition, you do have uh, a nice apartment, you know, and it's all paid for. Uh, the utilities are pretty cheap. Um, food is cheaper. Um, everything is relative and it's, uh, it is cheaper. And so for us too, it was, you know, our kids were going to get a good education, a good school, a uh, Christian school. They'll have a great foundation. And when they leave here, we felt pretty good about where they were going to be and, you know, where this was going to direct them in life. And so that was for us more valuable than the paycheck for sure. sure. Yeah. And, and how so, did you end up moving, moving to Taichung then? So I was uh, only in Kaohsiung for a few months. And, uh, and then my superintendent was talking to me about positions opening in leadership in Taichung. And I, um, I was interested because I had just finished my, uh, my cohort, uh, all my education uh, leadership classes and actually passed my uh, my exam to get my license right before I left for Taiwan. I mean, literally two weeks before I left for Taiwan, right. I finished my uh, my principal's license. And so uh, so I was looking for something if uh, if something opened up. So he talked to me about uh, a learning coach position. And um, initially, actually, he was talking to me about the the uh, there was a principal's position at our Morrison Taipei campus. And um, and so I, I told him I'd be interested in, in uh, being included in the short list that he had. Uh, that didn't work out, and uh, which was great. I was totally fine with that. But then this learning coach position came open, and uh, and I felt pretty comfortable with that. And uh, and my kids, uh, especially my daughter, was very athletic, and this school had a lot of uh, bigger athletic programs. And so I felt like this would have been a good fit, a bigger campus, more programs, uh, learning coach job was, uh, I thought was a good next step in leadership. And so, um, so I took it and, uh, we finished our year in Kaohsiung and then moved north to Taichung, uh, that summer. And, uh, and I've been here now, I think it's eight years since then. Wow. So I've been in this campus for eight years and not in, uh, Taiwan total nine years. Great. So, yeah. Great. And, and how did you, how did, um, so our friend Dave Freeman, I think you had you took over his job, is that right, or the other way around? No, actually, we were teaching, uh, or we were both learning coaches in different places. That's great, yeah. Yeah, so he was already here in Taichung, but he was the elementary middle school learning coach, and then I was the high school learning coach. Right. And so that's when we became uh, good friends and uh, worked together quite a bit, you know, did a lot of meetings and conferences and things together. And so, um, and then after I took this job, then, uh, he became learning coach uh, for me when I was the principal here um, yeah. for I think one or two years, uh, and then he took another job outside of Morrison after that. 
And, and how, how did the transition go to be principal? Was that just, was that like the job came through and you, and you applied for it or did they kind of hit you up and say, you know, Doug, we want you to do this job because you did a great uh, job? Well, it seemed to me there was there were discussions, I think, before I had even moved to Taijiang about uh, the other principal that was here leaving pretty soon. And I didn't really know anything about uh, potential uh, leadership positions other than the one I was going to take. Uh, but uh, but apparently it sounded like they were thinking that I, I might be a good candidate for that position. And so uh, I was the learning coach for, I think, uh, I don't know, it was a year or two years. And then they started talking to me about uh, the other principal getting ready to leave and if I'd be interested in taking over. And, um, and so, again, one of those things where I talked to my wife about it, we prayed about it and uh, we knew that if I did that, that would mean we were going to probably need to commit for a longer period of time. They were asking uh, for four years. Um, the contract was only two, but they were hoping that, you know, that I would stay for at least four years as the new principal. And so, um, so anyway, we, um, through all of that, then I think that those, in those conversations, we were feeling like this was a good fit that I was comfortable moving over one door uh, from my old office yeah. to the new office. And, uh, and taking this on. Uh, so, um, so that's kind of how it happened. Um, yeah. And then uh, I had one year as a learning coach, knowing uh, that I was already approved by the school board to take over the next year as the principal. And so for that one year, it was really kind of nice because I got a, a lot of good, uh, deep conversations with the current principal, got to see kind of uh, firsthand everything that he was doing. And um, Kind of combine it with my philosophy and uh, his kind of pedagogy of, of education and uh, kind of form my own before I took over the position could kind of envision myself doing it and what I would do things I would change stuff like that sure. and, um, and so then I mean I know it's a very broad question but I mean is it is it a more stress do you find it more stressful or is it are you, do you find it kind of um, something you, you felt like you were ready to do uh, being the principal here, yeah, being the principal, I mean, yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, I, I find it a lot more stressful. It's uh, it, it's very, very comparable to being a head football coach. Yeah. Uh, so having had that experience, I could draw back on it. Yeah. And the the similarity is, uh, is really because you get so many different pressures from so many different areas, yeah. and uh, you never know, kind of from day to day, where it's going to come from. Or, I mean, the, the sc a school is so dynamic. There's just so many things that happen and you're dealing with so many people. You know, you're, you've got priorities and you've got, you know, things you want to get accomplished, but life happens and, uh, and you deal with uh, situations as they come up, whether it's a student or a staff or a parent. It's just, it seems like it's, it's very challenging, but it's also um, ever-changing. About the job, yeah. it's almost, it seems it's almost like a 24-7. Because, I mean, when I've been out hanging out with you, like we've, we run... We ran the Google Summit on the weekend, you know, so you were obviously involved in that, but you were off doing other things. You had, I think, two evenings. You had evening functions with parents and things. You had another different school event, sport event or something during the day and some theater things. So you were kind of like, it seems like there's a lot of evenings and weekends and things involved in that job as well. Yep, you're exactly right. That's what makes it tough. The, the tough thing is just trying to, uh, to balance your time and uh, delegate the things that you can delegate and uh, manage what you can manage and, uh, trying to keep on top of everything is uh, is a daily challenge, and so uh, that's not something you can do first year, second year. Um, I just finished my fifth year, and um, I'm still learning to do that better. 
Um, this year is an anomaly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it's hard to compare this year to anything because uh, nobody has seen anything like this before. But uh, sure. but I do think that there were some things that I had done in my past uh, that helped prepare me for uh, this semester of, of pandemic. But um, but I tell you, just the job in and of itself without having to deal with all of that is enough. And it does keep you busy and does keep you going in a lot of directions. I think the, the best thing to do is, I mean, you try to stay centered. Uh, you try to try to stay, um, just uh, keep things in perspective sure. and don't uh, make too much of uh, issues. Don't think too much about it. Try not to take it home with you. Um, you, you manage what you can manage. And uh, sometimes you have to say no or I can't and uh, that's okay. And, um, and then the rest of it's just kind of priorities and you keep your priorities on your kids and on your staff and, and on your school. And, uh, um, and then in the end, I'm human and I can only do so much. And, and sometimes sure. that's okay. <laughs> now, now, when you get to be principal of an international school like you are or of high school, what's, what's the next stage? I mean, I presume there's like a director position for the school. Is that, is that, is that something that people would traditionally move to next or, or, or potentially or what, 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 would be, what would be another move if you wanted to continue upwards in the international school? management. Yeah, I think most international schools have uh, either a superintendent or a head of school, um, whatever they call them. There is a, another uh, step above if you wanted to take it. Um, for me, it's not really a desire. Yeah. I'm not really uh, wanting to to move in that direction. Um, I think this position's enough. I mean, it's uh, it definitely has enough challenge for me. Um, so as far as uh, if there were another level, that would be it. Um, yeah. You know, and I think a lot of people probably look at it as uh, they could go up as the head of school or superintendent. But I think a lot of principals just look for other principal jobs as opposed to going up to the next level because it comes with a completely different set of responsibilities. And I think the further you go up, the further you distance yourself from students, too. Yeah. And I think that's another very difficult thing. And that's something I really had to adjust to as the principal here. Uh, is trying to keep connected with students because you're out of the classroom now. You don't you don't see them day to day like you used to, and now you're almost out of touch with you know what they're doing daily and uh, what they're involved in and what their needs are, and sure. and so you look for ways to try to stay connected and uh, whatever it is, whether it's you know attending events or having like running small groups, advisories or um, you know mentoring. Uh, things like that and you just try to look for ways to stay connected with the kids and sure. uh, be in the classrooms and so uh, yeah the further you go up and then when you become head of school or superintendent now you're usually at a central office even you know outside of your campus so you keep yeah. moving away further and further so sure. that's definitely not why i got into education so wouldn't want to do that yeah so that's a good transition to talk about taiwan i mean what what, what are your thoughts i mean uh I, I love taiwan you know we're we're maybe thinking about a move with the family to asia and taiwan's one of the places yeah i, mm-hmm. I like tai chung it's kind of a bit different not as many foreigners it's a bit more of an experience you know in taiwan right. like do, do you think you're going to stay there a while like what, what's your plans longer term um well i have uh my my oldest daughter just graduated uh this year so two weeks ago so I have three kids. She was the first to graduate and uh, I've got uh, a junior son or to be junior son and then uh, and then a sophomore son. And so uh, we're looking at probably getting them all through Morrison and then uh, possibly going back um, to the States. I mean, honestly, I I really like 
Taiwan, and I've loved living here. Um, we start, we'll start our tenth year this summer, and um, I, I've really enjoyed it. I enjoy the the people, the environment, the weather. Um, I mean, it's just so laid back compared to America, and uh, it's just it's just a different kind of uh, mentality of the people here. And yeah, so I, sorry, Kurt, Kurt. yeah. You, you know, I mean, having been here just to, uh, several times that you have, you know, whether it's, you know, the App Summit or going to Taipei, it's, uh, it's just kind of different. And, um, uh, yeah, it's just something I've gotten used to and that I enjoy. And uh, uh, if we go go back in three years and my youngest son graduates, um, I'll definitely be sad. I mean, I sure. uh, I will do it uh, probably if that's where we feel called back to. But, um, but it, it would not be an easy decision still. Yeah, so I want to talk a bit about living in Taiwan because there's probably some people li listening who, you know, different teachers and people listening who are looking at different countries. And I, you know, Taiwan's interesting. You know, it's it's um, it's got a strange political status. You can read about it online. Yeah. But it's, the thing, you know, I noticed is um, it, it's definitely, I haven't spent much time in mainland China, but, but Taiwan is much friendlier. And I think everyone says this, like the people are, you know, yeah. everyone is friendly, taxi drivers, people. It, it's like people are very, very friendly. There. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the very first thing that I noticed. I visited here um, two years before I moved here, and I was here for two weeks, like over a Christmas break. And uh, and from the very beginning, there's two things I at least that stick out in my memory. One is the people were unbelievable. I had never been to a place where so many people, especially people that didn't speak a lot of English, were so friendly towards me and my family. And two were the smells. It was just always... There's yeah. different smells everywhere you go in Taiwan. So those are the two things that stuck out. But uh, but yeah, having been here for so long, it, it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't, you know, just a one time thing. You're here and you just you met a few friendly people. It's like consistently. And then, yeah. and it's not just even like in America, you, you may come across people in a store or a restaurant that are friendly towards you. But here it's like people will go way out of their way uh, routinely to make sure that you're OK or that they meet your needs or, I mean, going to stores and ordering things. Sometimes you'll see people running to get it and running back and yeah. uh, asking for directions on the street. I mean, people, instead of giving you directions, they will show you, they'll walk you to uh, the, you know, a near location. Or I even had one time I was in uh, Tao Yuan uh, looking for, for something with, uh, I was with Larry Dilly and, uh, and we were asking directions in this late for this restaurant. And this lady was trying to tell us and she said, here, I'll just show you. And, and she took us to her car and she actually drove us to the restaurant. Oh. Like, who does that? And it's like two guys. It's like six o'clock at night. And she's like, hey, come on, I'll, I'll take you. That's and amazing. just drive. Yeah. Who does that? And so, but that's kind of typical here. I mean, the people are just amazing and, and they, they're so selfless. And so living in Taiwan, you, you learn of a new culture that's so different than the one that I grew up in. Uh, that just makes you just enjoy being here and being a, a part of these people. Now, I mean, the, the place most people would go is, is Taipei. That's the capital. And and I mean, Taipei is interesting because I, I like it because it's very green. It's surrounded by big sort of lush green hills. You can see it from everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a big city. I mean, uh, did, you, did you spend much time in Taipei? Oh, not, not really. No, not really. Um, I wish I could spend more. Yeah. Anytime I go up there, um, I enjoy being up there. There's yeah. Seems like there's a lot more. I still eat a lot of Western foods. My my diet hasn't changed a whole lot, and they have a lot more, not just even Western, but even European, and just a huge variety of, of restaurants. Sure. And so, um, so I I love going to Taipei, but it is a little more uh, 
culturally mixed in terms of Western and, and some European and, uh, and more people speak English there and they're used to more people that are, are foreigners uh, there. Yeah. And so uh, it's different than Taijiang, different feel. Uh, you have all those little small back roads, you know, those alleys that are full of restaurants and, you know, pubs and just places to hang out. And yeah. um, Taichung is just different. It doesn't have that that feel. Yeah. Um, so so Taichung, for people who don't know, Taiwan's kind of like, if you imagine like it's, it's kind of a, it goes north to south, I guess. And there's a high-speed rail goes all the way down the West Coast and to yeah. connects all the major cities pretty much. And Taichung's like the next city yeah. below Taipei, isn't it? So yeah. it's a huge manufacturing. I, I don't know. I know all bikes, most bikes in the world get made there. Some other things as well. So it's, it's, it's a big city, isn't it? It's like a major city. Huge. Yeah. It used to be three behind Kaohsiung and now it's overtaken it since we've been here yeah. uh, as the number two most populated country. Um, and there are a lot of businesses here, a lot of manufacturing. Um, so it's uh, it's been more and more even uh, military personnel, um, uh, Nike, Corning, uh, uh, Pratt & Whitney, um, a lot of co- companies. And so they you know, bring people from overseas and and I, I get to meet a lot of the parents because they're looking for schools and trying to get their kids into Morrison. And so, yeah, well, what's um, it like as a, as a foreigner? Like, is it kind of I guess expat life? Is it is there a lot of foreigners? And are, are there many schools other than Morrison where people like you know English language schools uh, in in Taichung? There aren't too many, really. There's really only four, and sort of actually depending on how you how do they classify themselves, but. Uh, there aren't many, and and some of them are bilingual and uh, not true English speaking. So these companies that are bringing foreigners overseas, uh, that, that's been a huge issue that some of the employees don't want to come if there aren't good schools for their kids, uh, sure. or if the school is a bilingual school, then it's too hard for them to communicate. Uh, so Taijiang is just very limited in the number of international type schools, uh, and we're a Christian international school, and so. Um, even though you don't have to be a Christian to come here, uh, we're still um, capped by our school board numbers and, and what they see is where they want to keep our class sizes and our teacher to student ratios. And so that, that makes it a little more challenging for these companies to come in and it lessens their choices. So they really only have one or two choices. Right. Um, and so it's just, uh, it's very hard, I think, for um, companies to come in and, and have a, a good option for an international school uh, for their kids. And so I think it makes it harder for them to bring in that, uh, the, the employees that they want to come in. Yeah. So, and what's it like, like socially? I mean, I know it's kind of broad term, socially, sports, things like that. Like how, how do you find it in terms of, uh, uh, living there? Uh, it seems to have gotten a lot better even, uh, with the, you know, the number of, uh, like pubs. And I, I know, you know, we have friends at AmCham and, uh, American Chamber of Commerce and, and just looking at the advertisements and things they have with social events and, and stuff. It's nothing like Taipei from what I've seen in Taipei, but yeah. uh, it's not too bad. And then we have a baseball stadium down the street, which now you know, that's opening back up. And, um, and we've gone to a lot of baseball games. Uh, there's not a lot of um, other sporting type events here, at least that we would go see. Um, yeah. So socially, it's, it's a lot of so participation sport. I mean, is that league? Can people play like basketball and soccer and things like that? Like, is, is, that, is that kind of thing happen? Um, it's uh, it does, but it's very limited. I mean, yeah. even just having kids that were involved in sports and trying to get uh, get them into clubs or to um, like intramural type, uh, you know, sports, there, there are very few options, especially if you don't speak Chinese, right? Uh, then it makes it even harder. So, 
yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's limited. That's been the tough thing for us and trying to keep our kids involved in things too. And, uh, and not having very many options, sure. uh, but our school has done a good job and we've got people here at our school. Like we're running a, we're just finishing a, a two week camp now. Well, it was a two, one week camps, um, with basketball, uh, soccer, um, arts and crafts. Um, and so it's, it's kind of one of those things where there's a need and then someone steps up and then, uh, fills the need with, uh, yeah kind of like an entrepreneurial spirit, you know, just to yeah, uh, sure. start a, a small business to provide a service to our kids and our community. Sure. Uh, so that's kind of what I've seen more happen with our community, which has been great. And it's you know, a huge benefit to our, our kids. And what about uh, learn, learning Chinese, man? I know you were studying Chinese when I was there. I mean, is it, is it, how are you finding it? Is, is it a realistic proposition to learn to speak? Do you think? Uh, I mean, it's really do it, but uh, is, it, is it for you? Uh, it's, I'm not there yet. Um, I, I feel embarrassed anytime I tell someone I've been here for nine years and I'm not fluent in Mandarin, um, especially if I tell any any local uh, people because they ask me how long I've been here and they can ask in Chinese and I know and then I'll tell them, you know, uh, <laughs> how many years. And, and it's uh, then they're like, and you don't speak Chinese? And I'm like, no, not yet. So it's on my still list of things to do, which it may still be on there for a while. But uh, it is a bit challenging. It is something that uh, you really kind of need to devote yourself to. Um, I don't know if Morrison could do any better. I mean, we do a, a, a survival Chinese class for, you know, any of our, our new staff that come in, uh, but it's uh, scratches the surface. I mean, that's about it. I mean, it is survival, but um, I wish there would be even, and they do offer, I mean, to pay uh, if you want to do private lessons and there's a certain amount of money that they'll pay for that. So there is that you just got to take the initiative, but then find the right people. Uh, sure. But it does help a lot if you know uh, some basic language, you know, when you walk out, you know, go to a store or go to a, a shop or somewhere. So and I'll keep working on it. Program or do you do Chinese lessons as well in the school for, for, the, for the children? Uh, well, our, our kids do. I mean, most of the kids will have Chinese until middle school. Yeah. And so after eighth grade, then they have a choice of Spanish or Chinese. Sure. And so it's kind of up to them, however they want to do it. Most universities require at least two years of the same language. And yeah. so some, you know, they just choose either one they want to go. Um, so for our kids, they, they've got some options. Our staff, they don't really have any options unless they go outside to a, a local, like a, kind of like a bushy bond or um, some kind of a language school. Sure. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, it's it's. I mean, you know, I, I would love to learn Chinese. It's just uh, you know, one of those things. It's just you know, I know you've got to really dedicate a lot of time to it. I think there's no, it's not an easy. I mean, although speaking is, I mean, the written language is a whole different level of difficulty, isn't it? You can learn, yeah. you can get the speaking without the written potentially. Yeah, I can I can do the, uh, pinyin okay, so I can actually read a decent amount of pinyin, uh, but the the zoying and the or the juing or bopomofo. Uh, uh, those are when you start learning the sounds that the characters make. I can't do that at all, <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately. But I think a lot of people think that that's the best way to start is to learn the Bopa Mofo. But um, yeah. yeah, I just I haven't. And it's funny, too, because like I said, just about uh, this job and time, uh, sure. you do kind of need to choose what you do and where you prioritize your time. And um, I, I learn enough to get by, but it's uh, it's not as much as I would like. But it's also you know, uh, something I, I just haven't devoted a lot of time. Now this year, I'm not going back to the States. And so, um, after today, 
uh, I'm going to vacation for a few days and, yeah. and then I'm going to look for a tutor or maybe if I can get a couple of days a week at a language school sure. and, and try to just brush up now that I've got some extra time. Yeah, I mean, so, when I've been with you, I was impressed. I mean, you definitely, you, you communicated everywhere we went, you know, you, you can get by definitely. And in, in at a, at a, what I, I mean, to me as an outsider, it seemed like a pretty decent level. <laughs> but I'm obviously yeah, not. Well, that big, so. <laughs> Appreciate that. Builds my confidence, Dan. Thanks. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Look, Doug, it's a real pleasure to talk. I know we're almost up to the hour. So um, that was great. It's a really interesting talk about your whole journey to becoming a principal and, and a bit about Taiwan. So uh, thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, happy to do it, man. Anytime. Sorry it took us a little little while. Like the first yeah. time I think you asked, we were right in the in the middle of uh, dealing with pandemic stuff, and no so problem. it took a little more time to kind of get through some things. And uh, now I'm I'm finding time to to get the things I want to do, like talk to you. So it's good. Yeah. Well, what's a good place for people to connect with you online, like Twitter or LinkedIn? Like, where are you the most active? Or um, I, I'm really probably more of a social media consumer. Yeah. <laughs> so. But, <laughs> I follow, uh, I do a lot on, on Twitter. Um, at least I do. I have a lot of people that I follow and I read what they, they put out. And so that, that probably is the, the easiest or Facebook, sure. um, which I still have connected with uh, a lot of former students and uh, teachers and people that I know through Facebook. Uh, so those are probably the two that I, I look at the most. Great. Doug, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk. Yeah, same here, Dan. Talk to you soon, man. Take care.